Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And we had taken a cup and given thanks. He said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. The Passover is critical for us to really understand what's happening in this passage. So what is Passover? Well, it's celebrating when God led his people out of bondage from Egypt. But that begs the question, how did the Israelites end up in Egypt to begin with, much less being slaves to Egyptians? Well, you have to go back into the story a little bit, so bear with me. There arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, who believed the Israelites were going too many in number. So you had the males, young males of the Hebrews killed. Well, who was Joseph? Well, Joseph was a man going way back. He had some brothers. Now, I'm paraphrasing a lot. You'll find this in Genesis Chapter 43 on in the Genesis 50, this, this background story. So he had some brothers, and the brothers, brothers were jealous of Joseph. They felt like dad loved him more than anybody else. His dad made him a beautiful coat of many colors. Perhaps you've heard that story. And they threw him into a pit. They sold, sold him into slavery. And the people took him, and a guy named Potiphar, who was Egyptian, ended up buying him. And his name was Potiphar. He had a wife, and his wife really liked Joseph, thought Joseph was very good looking. She would drive to seduce him. He says, no, he's made me lord over his whole house. See, Joseph succeeded everywhere he went because the Bible tells us that God was with Joseph. His hand was upon Joseph. And so Joseph didn't want to betray the trust of Potiphar. And one time he got away and tore his tunic, and she had it in his hand a piece of his cloth, and she goes, tells her husband, look, look what he tried to do. Here's a piece of his robe in my hand. He threw him in jail. But yet, God was still with Joseph. And some people get thrown into jail from Pharaoh, his cupbearer, and his baker, because he gets mad at them. And Joseph has continued to get trust in the jailer like Joseph because, once again, the favor of God was on Joseph. And they had some dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams. 
Well, the king calls him back out. The cupbearer forgot Joseph. Make a long story short, there's a guy who was with, uh, heard Joseph interpret dreams, and Pharaoh had this dream, no one can interpret it. And this guy stands up, hey, I know this guy who's in the jail. He interprets the dreams very well. So Joseph goes and turns the dreams of Pharaoh, and he rises up in Pharaoh's ranks. Now, the details are important, but what I want you to get out of this, the hand of God was on Joseph the entire time. In fact, in Genesis, Joseph tells his brothers, because his brothers go back to Egypt, because they're starving, there's famine in the land. So after all this time passes, there his brothers are going to him to get some food. And he tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good, for the time is now. Well, then all the Israelites come up. Joseph had done well with the grain. They had plenty of grain to feed people through the famine. And then we get into Exodus where a pharaoh rose up, didn't know Joseph, and that's how they ended up in bondage. Moses, when Pharaoh decided to kill the babies, his mother put him in a reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter found him. He was raised in Pharaoh's house. He ended up killing an Egyptian, fled out. He meets his, his future bride and future father-in-law. Uh, my mind just went blank. Seth, thank you. Jethro. And he's out there tending sheep and he has a burning bush experience. And of course, you may know that story. He reluctantly goes to lead his people out of Egypt. And you have these plagues. And this last plague is the Passover. And I want to pick it up. I want to read something out of Exodus to you, what the Lord tells him to tell the people. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 3, then verses 5 through 8. On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be unblemished, male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You should keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel or the top of the doorframe of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So what happens is this last plague is God's going to kill the firstborn. He tells Israelites, put this blood of the lamb on the, on your doorpost and on the top of the doorframe and I will pass over you. Hits the name Passover. Well, the next day the Egyptians let him go. In fact, they give him stuff. They plunder the Egyptians. Egyptians say, here, take anything you want. Just get out of here. Pharaoh reluctantly lets them go. And then he changes his mind. They chase after him. Then we have the Red Sea. The Red Sea splits. Israelites walk on dry ground, all 1.5 million, lots of people. They go through, and the sea crashes on Pharaoh's army, kills them, and that gives birth to the nation Israel. Now, I just walked through a lot of history here. Go back and read it for yourself. I want you to think about the importance of Passover during this time for the disciples. It was remembering how God let them out, how God made them a nation. There were slaves, but they came out. He made them a nation, his covenant people. He provided for them, watched over them. The Passover had 
theological, religious, and political implications all tied up into it. Even today, when they, pre- when they observe the Passover, it reminds them of their redemption from Egypt. Of course, you have the land that they eat. Reminds them of the blood. The unleavened bread reminds them of the swiftness of their redemption. They also have a bowl of salt water. Reminds them of the tears of their captivity. And the bitter herbs remind them of the bitterness of slavery. Then they have this thing called kerosene which is sweet relish made with fruits, nuts, and spices, as well as wine and a binder like honey. And that reminds them of the clay they had to make and and make with their own hands and their feet, and then they make these bricks for the Egyptians. And there was four cups of wine that they used in Passover that reminds them of the four promises of Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. So you can see even the Passover day, how they celebrate it, points to Christ. Everything about that meal reminds them of what God did for them on that day. So here they are. They're sitting around this table. Well, hold on, we'll get to that in a moment. Because it says, look at the text, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table. What hour had come? The time had come to celebrate Passover. And it was eaten in a reclining position. I don't know if I should get down and illustrate this point or not, but they didn't sit at a table like you and I did. I don't know where I can, I'll do right here. They would lay down sort of like this. The table would be right here. They would recline on their side with a pillar underneath them. This is how they would eat. And you can see that mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. You find it in Luke chapter 11, verse 37, chapter 14, verse 10, and chapter 17, verse 7. And some of you are going, well, I didn't know that because have you seen Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper? That's not true to the biblical account. In fact, they were reclining at the table as they were enjoying this feast. So a very intimate setting we have here as we're gathering around remembering what God had done and what God had promised to do in the future. And look what Jesus says. As they're reclining around the table, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He wanted to enjoy this Passover with them. He wanted that point to teach them about the new covenant that would be in his blood. That he was going to bring his work to a conclusion. And for Luke, this whole scene is centered around Jesus' suffering. Look what he says. I shall never eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And later he takes a cup. He gives thanks. He says, take this and share it among you. I will not drink of it. Until the kingdom of God is fulfilled. In other words, he's saying, this is the last time I'll share this with you. I won't do this again until the kingdom of God is fulfilled. He's referring to the messianic banquet at the end of history when the kingdom of God is consummated. The kingdom of God is here now. All right? This is explained this first. 
The kingdom of God is here now, and as believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. To put it, forgive me for putting it this way, but the best way I can explain the evasion has already begun, if you will. One life at a time, coming to know Christ, the Holy Spirit residing in them, the kingdom of God is growing as we speak. So one day when he comes again, all this will be gone. Everything. And he'll come again. It's interesting, if you, if you go back in time, and you look how they had marriages back then, they were arranged, and the 17-year-old boy, his father would go to him and said, we need to go find your bride, I want you to add on to my house for your bride to be. And they would go out, and they would knock on the doors of young women, usually around the age of 14 or 15, to find a bride for his son. And when he did that, the two fathers, father of the bride and the father of the bridegroom would come together and negotiate a price. And when that price was settled upon, he would go out and he would finish that addition to his father's house for him and his bride. Now, you imagine a village would have all these young women. And it was understood that all these women were virgins. So all these young women are sitting there waiting for the bridegroom. And at the usually at night, he would come when he was ready to go get his bride and all the Young ladies, I imagine, is that my man? Is is that the one coming for me? Am I ready to go? Do I have everything together? That is a picture, dearly beloved, of Christ and his bride, the church. You and I. What did Jesus tell them? I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to add on. I'm going to go to my father's house and all these mini mansions are in there i'm going to go to prepare a place for you and if i go to prepare a place for you he says i'm coming back to get you so where i'm at you can be also and the price has already been paid the cross and so here the setting the the last passover one thing that bride and bridegroom would do was they would after the price was agreed to they have wine and they pour it in one cup one would drink out of it and then the other one would drink out of it, signifying the covenant. So this is what's going on here. It's like an engagement coming. I'm not going to do this again until the kingdom is consummated. And until that day comes, this will be the last time that I enjoy. This time I enjoy this with you is when that day will come. Jesus will not share in such a banquet meal with his disciples until the kingdom of God is consummated. He goes, this is my body, he says. Listen very carefully. Which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now remember, there was unleavened bread in the Passover. Why was it unleavened bread? Because there wasn't time for them to let their bread rise when they got out of Egypt. It happened that quick, so they left. It reminds them of the swiftness and the quickness of their redemption. Leaven, a yeast or a baking powder that causes the fermentation and expansion, only a small amount is needed. If you've made bread, you know this to be true. It only takes a small amount of yeast to affect the whole lump of dough, and it, it expands, it rises. 
Now, leaven represents sin in the Bible. It doesn't take a lot of sin to infect everything. We like to classify sin. If I murder somebody, that's a big sin. But if I tell a lie, well, that's not so bad. It only takes a little bit of sin. Sin will always, I'm sure you've heard this before, sin will always take you somewhere that you never intended to go and keep you there a lot longer than you ever intended to be there. Look back to Genesis once again. You see the fall of man. They partake of the tree, the the knowledge of good and evil. Adam, where are you at? I'm over here. I'm hiding because I'm naked. Who told you you're naked? Well, that woman you gave me goes to Eve. Eve said, it was the servant that tricked me. He deceived me. Starts out with a small little lie that they believed. What happens three chapters later? The first murder. Cain kills Abel. Sin is always a slow fade. It's always a slow fade. You take that first step, doesn't seem to be bad. Then you take another, and then another. And soon you realize you're in a world of hurt, wondering how you got there. It's not God's trying to be mean, making us jump through hoops and jump over obstacles. He has created us. He knows what's best. And he tells me, Tim, is this better? Don't even open that door. Because it's a very slippery slope that you will go down. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7, Paul writing to the Corinthians. They're having a difficult time really observing the supper correctly. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Listen to this. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Just as there's no leaven in the bread, there was no sin in Jesus. If Jesus had committed any sin at all, no matter how small that sin in our eyes it would be, his sacrifice would be worthless. Because he would have the sin problem. If his sacrifice is worthless, the cross is meaningless, then you and I are eternally lost. Because Jesus had not been able to die for your sin or mine. But he was perfect. 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 He did not commit one sin. Book of Hebrews tells us he was tempted in all ways as we are, but with no sin. His perfect body, just like that Passover lamb, had to be unblemished. Jesus was unblemished. He had not sinned. And he says, this body is given for you. It's a gift. This is not forced on him by somebody else. The Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus so many times before this. But God would not allow it because his time had not been fulfilled. And when the time was right, 
Jesus willingly laid his life down for you and I, for everyone, the entire world. God the Father did this because he loves you and he wants, he wanted to justify you in his presence. In other words, God loves you so much that he paid the price for you so that you can stand in his presence and enjoy the fellowship with him uninterrupted. When he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin as a believer. He sees the, he sees the son's precious blood that covers your sin. Uh, put it to you this way. Would you like to go meet the governor of Texas? How many would you like to have a conversation with Governor Abbott? Just a five, Would anybody like to do that? Uninterrupted audience with the governor. Do you know what you'd have to do to even get that point? All the red tape you would have to go to? And would you really have five minutes interrupted? Or would his mind be somewhere else thinking on something else about to come in the door? Or even the president? Dearly beloved, we have audience with the very one who allowed him to take that office to begin with. And that's the Lord God Almighty. He's available 24-7. Because his body was given for you, it gives you that access. But there's even more here. Let's, let's continue on. But before I do, 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16. This is a bad reference, but I'm going to mention that there was a group called Foreigner, had a, group, a hit out back in the 80s called, I want to know what love is. We want to know what love is? Look at 1 John 3.16. We know love by this. That he, Christ, laid down his life for us. You want to see love demonstrated? Look at the cross of Christ. He says that this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And I mention the day of atonement. That only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, the very presence of God himself. To make atonement for the people. Now, the high priest had to be pure before he went in there because he would be struck dead. Tradition holds that they would tie a rope around his ankle and had bells around the end of his, on the hem of his garment as he went in because they, as long as he was moving, you could hear the bells chime a little bit and he knew it was okay because they're not going in there to get him if he died. They're going to pull him out. Once a year, the priest would do that. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, talks about the blood, but I want you to realize that not everyone could go into the Holy of Holies, only a high priest. Only the priest could go into the holy place. And in the inner court around the temple were for Jewish people. Most of us, if not all of us in this room of Gentiles, would be outside somewhere. It's almost, to use a sports analogy, it's like sitting right behind a home plate or sitting out in the parking lot. Look what Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 tells us. For the law, since it, only ha- it has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. You can never do it. It can never remove sin. 
Otherwise, he writes, he writes, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, they're a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that's what's the beautiful thing. Year after year, they had to do this. And they're always sacrificing for something. But because of the sacrifice of Christ, one time, his sins cover, his blood covers all the sins from eternity past to eternity future. And because of that, we can go right into the throne room of God himself. Think about that for a moment. Close your eyes for a second. Picture God on the throne. What comes to your mind? Clouds, thick clouds, lightning. When he speaks, thunder, shakes. And yet he invites us into his very presence. His very presence. You hear people sometimes tell you, well, if I could do that for you, I would. God said, yeah, I can do that for you, and I did. This last part of this passage, Jesus says, The hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. Jesus is sobering. He's not caught unaware of what's going to happen. What began in chapter 9, verse 51, he would continue to do in order to fulfill the divine plan. Even the betrayal was part of the divine plan. The desire of the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the decision of Jesus, even the role of Satan served in the divine purpose. See, his death is not a tragedy, but it was predetermined. It was planned. It was foreknown. Look what he says. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Jesus says, I knew this was going to happen. Wrap your mind around that one for a second. What's heaven going to be like? Can you imagine the splendor and glory of heaven? We talk about the streets of gold and the mansions. Well, what, what, how can that compare to being in the presence of God himself? Can you imagine such a place? And yet, Jesus came here knowing full well what was going to happen. He knew. He wasn't caught unaware. He knew. And yet he still come. But he makes the next statement, Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Any attempt to romanticize Jesus' role in fulfilling the divine plan is demolished with this statement. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And we see that same statement in Matthew 26, 24, and Mark chapter 14, verse 21. This is... A great example how you have the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. It was God's plan that Jesus would go to the cross to pay for the sin of all mankind. That he would be the Passover lamb. That he would provide salvation for everyone who believes. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God, the Father, designed that. It was his plan from the beginning. But Judas still had a choice to make. 
He didn't have to. If he didn't do it, God would provide another way, I'm sure of that. And here's another question. If Judas did not commit suicide, but yet went to the Lord Jesus and confessed and repented, would Jesus have forgiven him? I would have to say yes. So you have God's will that cannot be through it. A guy's going to get done what he wants to get done, but he still allows us to have a choice. Still allows us a choice to be made. It's like when it all comes down to it, and each of us, no matter our skin color, economic standing, Right, left, conservative, liberal, it doesn't matter. When we all stand before God that day, Jew and Gentile, male and female, God's going to judge us. Anything that's going to matter on that day is my relationship with Christ. And we partake of this supper, we are reminded of Jesus' sacrifice for us. By our own standards, the cross is crude and is violent and is ugly. But it's only by Jesus dying on that cross and rising again on the third day am I saved. That's the only way I have salvation. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in in salvation. See, it's all about the heart. It's not just participating. It's not just coming and taking part of the supper, walking through it, just kind of going through the motions. It's all about the heart. The first Samuel read how God says, quit looking on the outward appearance of a man, but look at the heart. That's what God sees. You wonder. I'm just thinking out loud. Judas was there to see all of what happened. What went wrong? Where did he start to doubt? Before we cast a stone at Judas, we must remind ourselves, except for the grace of God, so go I. See, the need for an Old Testament Passover is over because we have the crucified lamb. Hence the title of this message, the last Passover. He has purchased our salvation and freed us from death. But however, this time, this age will not be forever. Better things are coming. A greater kingdom is coming. And for now, we are to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. That Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world through his blood. There is no other name under which a man can be saved. It's Jesus. He is our Passover lamb. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter all those outward things. It matters the condition of the heart. And as we come to the table this morning, we must ask ourselves one important question. Are we a faithful disciple? Are we faithful? Not just on Sunday morning, but every day of our lives. Are we just going through the motions? But are we really laying it all 
on the table. Giving God everything that we have. That's what he wants. You know, I heard this so many times. Oh, I, I can't sing very good. God says, I'm not interested in your voice. Give me your heart. Sing from your heart. That's what he wants. Because he knows when he has your heart, everything else will fall into place. We're going to come to a time of reflection. Because in Corinthians, we have a warning that Paul gives to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. He says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now notice, he didn't say, you are to be worthy. None of us are worthy. We're all sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ. But taking it in an unworthy manner, we have to stop. And see, the, the Lord's Supper reminds us of the sacrifice that it that took to purchase our salvation. But it also points to the future. As Jesus said, I will no longer eat of this until the kingdom of God is consummated. So it points to the future when he's going to come back. And make no mistake about it, he is coming back. One day that trump is going to blow. And the sky is going to roll back like a scroll. And he will descend. He won't come to the Baptists or the Catholics. All that stuff will be gone. Reminds me of that time that Israel is about to do war. His mighty angel shows up. Whose side are you on? Are you our friend or enemy? He goes, oh, I am the commander of the Lord's army. I'm not here to pick a side. I'm here to take over. That's what it's going to be like on that day. What is God tugging on your heart? What is he speaking to you right now? Perhaps you've never truly given your life to Christ. Maybe you just walk through the motions. Baptism, getting dunked in a tub of water, does nothing for you if you do not have faith in Christ. It starts with the heart. You follow in baptism because of what God's already done inside. Coming to church is important. Yes, it is. But it'll do nothing for you if you have not placed your faith and trust in Christ. That's where it's at. There's nothing. Please hear me. I'm going to end with this. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. Nothing. Nothing. There's no earning points with God. It's only by His grace through faith in His Son that we are saved. He loves you. He's long-suffering. It's not just patience. It's long-suffering with us. doesn't want anyone to perish, but all come to everlasting life. Have you made that choice? Have you given everything to God. And for us who are Christians, as we come around the Lord's table and partake of this meal, 
thinking about that night. Jesus knowing what laid before him. And as we think about that night, turns our attention to our lives. Am I being faithful? Am I producing spiritual fruit? And as I think and reflect upon that, naturally my attention goes to the future. When one day he comes back, then reminds me of family members and friends that I don't know if they have a relationship with Christ or not. Does it break my heart? Do I pray for them? On a consistent basis, do I witness to them? I'm not just saying, quote, Scripture to them. I'm talking about living my life out as well. And the last question we ask ourselves this morning is this. Are we making an impact on this community for all eternity? Because in the end, it's not going to matter what programs we had, what pews we had, what color the carpet was, how big the building was, how big the budget was. All that stuff is not going to matter. What is going to matter what we did for Christ. Yesterday I got a glimpse of that. Jesus told me, Timmy, me just give it to me. You commit everything you do to me to build my kingdom, and I'll take care of the details. He always does. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer.